It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, so today we're continuing with our uh, discussion of methodology of halacha. Um, and how you deal with modern problems. And I want to focus on the idea, on the concept of uh, subjectivity, diversity, and uh, also a concept called the hive mind. This is something that um, has been discussed in the last couple of years more openly, and that's the idea that people who think together organically can come at solutions, could come, uh, could arrive at solutions that... Um, that people who study the same matter um, analytically and systematically cannot. Uh, we you used to call it the grassroots, but the hive mind, the idea is that individuals put their mind to work together on um, for, on the same project, but you could call it brainstorming, but it really is every person brings his or her talents to the plate, and together they create a solution. And this is something that happens not necessarily in the lab or in R&D or... Um, in a in a you know in a boardroom where you said okay let's sit together and solve the problem. In many cases, this is just happens organically as people face challenges and they have to adjust to changing reality. And then this is also a concept that appears um, in many many um, different places in halacha. And with that, of course, we have to take into account the concept of subjectivity that. Not every not everything is objective. Even within within halacha, we tend to think that we, we are objective. That the law applies to everyone similarly. So of course, there are certain laws like that that would never change, no matter what. But when you go into the ramification and the details, <clears throat> there are a lot of um, differences between uh, rulings to. In the same case, in, in cases that seem similar but to different people, and we'll talk also a little bit about diversity. So we're going to go through the sources that we have here. They are uh, not in chronological order. Uh, usually I like to go in chronological order because, because this concept is really very broad, as, so I want to bring sources from different periods and look at it. So the first one is a, uh, is a segment from a very famous or at least fundamental story that appears in Masichet Psahim. It appears both in the Bavli and the Yerushalmi, different versions. In, uh, and it, that in itself is a, is, a, is a case study. The story there is about um, Hillel Hazaken, who came from uh, Babylonia, from Babel to Eretz Israel, and was relatively unknown. And then one year, uh, Pesach falls on Shabbat, meaning the not Erev Pesach, the fourteenth of Nisan falls on Shabbat, and the rabbis who were at, at the head of the uh, Sanhedrin or the rabbinic uh, leadership, ben, they, were, they were from the family of Betera, Bene Betera, didn't know what to do. They were debating whether the the Pesach could be uh, slaughtered on Shabbat or not, and the reason for their uh, Confusion was that 
it was clear to them that public uh, sacrifices can be brought on Shabbat, because this is the uh, obligation of the public, and it's written in the Torah that you bring the daily korbanot, the Shabbat, and the holidays, etc. And it was clear to them that personal korbanot, individual sacrifices, cannot be brought on Shabbat. But Pesah is sort of uh, in, on the twilight zone. It's On one hand, it's a personal sacrifice, but on the other hand, everybody brings it together at the same time, so it's sort of a public sacrifice. So how do you assess the Korban Pesah? And it's interesting by itself just to think, I mean, it's worth it to go and, and check around, again the story. Think of this uh, very, very weird scenario where the heads of the Sanhedrin, Benebetera, the leaders of the nation, don't know whether Pesach overrides Shabbat or not. And how many years have passed since the last time that Pesach fell on Shabbat? It's true that they, they uh, set the calendar based on witnesses, but we would have thought that this is a, a kind of halakha that everybody remembers. You know, like at, the, at Lela Seder, People sometimes forget whether, uh, you know, uh, you do Nitila now or here, do you raise the tray or don't raise the tray, but this is something essential that applies to the whole nation in the temple with the Kohanim. To just, it's a good, uh, it's a good thing to know that uh, such mistakes can happen halakha, that the leaders forget such a detail. In any case, Hillel comes along and and he tells the Bnei Betera that I mean, people say that he knows what to do. And here there are two different versions. According to the Babylonian uh, versions, of course, Hillel is a hero. And he wins the, the debate with logic, logical arguments and Kalva Homer, etc. According to the Yerushalmi, it's the exact opposite. They reject him. They mock him. Everything he says, everything, every logical argument he says, uh, they refute. Eventually he says... I have a tradition from my uh, my masters, Shemayan Avtalion, and they say, Im So, interestingly, the Rushalmi emphasizes the importance of tradition, and the Bavli, the importance of innovation, of, of, of sort of halachic creativity. In any case, that has passed. Now they agreed that you could uh, bring uh, the sacrifice and slaughter it on Shabbat, but they have a different question. And that is the where we start. They asked him, what happens if one forgot and did not bring the knife before Shabbat? What should he do? So we're talking about people bringing their korbanot from the city, from Yerushalayim, uh, which is separated from the, from the area of the temple, from Ir David, uh, valleys and, and mountains. There's no consecutive... Uh, uh, dwellings all over the city. So some people have to go through what would be Rishut Arabim. So if they forgot to bring their knife the day before to the temple, how are they going? Are they allowed to carry the knife on Shabbat? What should they do? And most probably, most of the people did not drop off their knives on Shabbat on Friday at the temple. Can you imagine the uh, the mayhem of thousands of people coming to the temple trying to find their slaughtering knives. I, I, I wouldn't want to be the police officer who's in charge of, of you know, order in that place with, with everybody's, you know, uh, wielding their knives. 
So most people did not bring their knives. But Hillel, who was asked, are you allowed to bring the knife on Shabbat or not? He said, shamati I heard that law, but I forgot it. So he forgot, again, another case of forgetfulness. Hillel forgot whether you're allowed to carry your knife to, um, to slaughter the, the, the lamb on Shabbat. Says, let them be, let the people or trust the people. If they are not, they may not be prophets, but they are the children of prophets. So to be the son of a prophet doesn't give you any special powers, right? It's uh, um, the son of a pilot. If you would have, you do, you know, if you go on a, on a flight, and the captain say says. I'm glad to welcome you to a flight, number whatever, to wherever. And don't worry, I'm not a pilot, but my, my father is a, is a veteran pilot. You're, you're safe. You, you, you know, everybody would uh, leave the plane immediately, right? So what is the, what is the meaning of that? They are the children of prophets. So we'll see later, but it, we, get, we get the sense that what Hillel is saying that is that people are resourceful, and they will know what to do within the realm of halakha. They will find they will find the solution. Don't worry, you don't have, in other words, you, the rabbis, you don't have to spoon-feed them. They might be able to find the solution on their own. <coughs> so what happened eventually? On the following day, which was Shabbat, those who brought a lamb stuck the knife in the wool, and those who brought a goat stuck it between the horns. So this is uh, horrible, right? It's, it's, it's so uh, it's inhumane. You bring, you let the lamb, you lead the lamb to the temple, and the lamb is carrying its own knife. It's really a little, you know, bit, you know, discomforting. But that's the story. So the people found the solution of how to overcome the problem. That's interesting. So uh, we go a little uh, no, forward in time to Rabbi Sachar Tamar, who wrote a beautiful commentary on, on um, the Yerushalmi, called Ali Tamar. And he explains this, Minhag Yisrael hu The practice of the nation is the halachic decision. And why is that? The nation as a whole has a, has a prophetic ability to reach the true essence of halacha in any case which was not decided by Beth Din. It's an amazing statement by, that, by this rabbi, um, which, you know, he came from Poland to Israel and witnessed the establishment of the state of Israel. So I think he really had this notion of Umat Israel becoming the nation in Israel, right? He says the practice of the nation is the halachic decision. So of course people would say, but who is the nation, right? So we're talking about people who try to be observant. Let's put it this way. Uh, I say try to be observant because there are a lot of people like that who would be labeled non-observant or non-firm enough by others. But what he le- what, what he's saying is that if people... Are, are trying to observe halakha, they will do the right thing. And he says, the nation as a whole has this prophetic ability, meaning 
that this is the, the dynamics of the community. Together they feel what is the right thing to do, right? So uh, to take a, you know, an, an example, I would say, if one of them would come up, you know, uh, back then if that existed, I'm bringing a cordless electric knife, other people say, no, 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 this is, this is not right, right? Uh, if someone would come with, up with a different manner of, of throwing the knife into the temple, they say, this is not right. But they don't have to say it because people will look at each other and will figure out what is the right thing to do. And Rabbi Sachar Tamar says, this is a valid, it's a valid um, method of deciding halakha. And um, I did the research on that to look for... Um, Instances in halacha where where the rabbis use that rule when they say which means let them be they they know what they're doing to say you know it's it's a you could say it's a different way of limutzchut but it's not limutzchut in the sense of uh, maybe they're mistaken but but oh no we could rely on this opinion that opinion no this is this is saying they, uh, we trust the people not to do something which is a transgression of halacha. So they figured out what is the right thing to do. So I looked for, I looked for uh, sources like that in the halachic literature. I found about 60 cases where this is used. Some of them are trivial. Some of them are really, really uh, interesting. Uh, one of them is the ruling of the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Isolis, regarding Yen uh, Stam Yenam, um, he speaks about the uh, widespread practice in his time, which is again interesting because, you know, today nobody drinks wine without supervision, right? Um, people even call that the wine without supervision. People uh, mistakenly call it non-kosher wine. So you have to have in mind: there's no such thing as non-kosher wine. There's non-labeled wine or non-supervised wine, uh, but wine does not have any non-kosher ingredients. And the original decree of the rabbis to um, not drink wine that was used by pagans does not apply today. It was ruling that uh, was brought back and forth for for a thousand years, um, and it's more sort of a political campaign by that was launched in Italy in the 16th century, and again in the 19th 20th century uh, in America with the with the establishment of. Uh, of the supervision labels, but really, there is no. Um, if you do, if we do the research of uh, Stamianam, you wouldn't find any uh, pagan religion, at least not you know, not those who make the wine or, or in our vicinity in the United States or Europe, who really use wine for pagan rituals. When the rabbis made the decree, uh, there were those who would uh, uh, would consecrate wine by just touching it. Today it doesn't anyway. It's a long story. We're going to get into it now, uh, and we all, we all follow the uh, um, you know the rulings of the community, whatever it is. I myself, I only buy uh, labeled wine because I always I have guests, and I'm not a big drinker, so it doesn't matter to me. But I don't think there is such a thing. Um, and the Rama deals with that issue with the people of Moravia, which is uh, I think today is part of Czechoslovakia. Um, there was a back and forth again in Europe. Uh, it says the people of Moravia used to drink Stamianam. They all drink Stamianam. Um, and they're all from Orthodox people. They're the 16th century. 
And he says, how can we explain that? He says, It's like saying they understand that, you know, organically, uh, intuitively, that it is not forbidden. It's amazing. It's an amazing statement. This is really using that rule to, uh, to something which today would be the marker of Orthodox Jews. Right? You don't drink wine outside. You don't drink... Uh, in my shul here, when there is a, uh, an event, um, sometimes they have a dinner, Friday night dinner, and they say, bring your own wine. Right? And so they make sure, they tell people, bring your own wine, and make sure it's mevushal, right? So it won't become yenesech. But that's not enough. Reminding people by email is not enough. There's a guard at the door, a mashgiah, that checks your wine and says, please... This is exactly let them be. You know what? What is the, the worst? Anyway, uh, but just just uh, to illustrate how this uh, how this halacha was used in reality by by the rabbis over over the years. So uh, this is what Rabbi Sachar uh, Tamar says. Now I'm going back to the Gemara to Baba Batra, the end of the third chapter in Baba Batra brings uh, the Gemara. Tells us a story, the a dispute between Rabbi Yeshua and the uh, uh, a fanatic sect that decided after the destruction of the temple that they will never eat meat and they will never drink wine again. And so Rabbi Yeshua, in the in the language of the Gemara, nitpal alehim, so he cl- you know he clings to them, he bothers them, and he says. And probably he does that because he fe- he's afraid that this um, mentality will spread to the rest of the people, and is not it's not healthy. We need we need the the people to rehabilitate, and they did rehabilitate within sixty years until the next war came and destroyed everything. But Rabbi Yoshua tells them, "Tell me why don't you eat meat? Why don't you drink wine?" And they say, "How can we? How can we eat meat? How can we drink wine?" when the temple is destroyed, the temple where we used to bring our sacrifices and libate the wine. So Abiyashah says, oh, I understand that. But if this is the case, you shouldn't eat bread either. Because we don't have the loaves of bread, the halot and the matzot and the rekikim that used to be brought to the temple. So they say, you're right. We're not going to eat that. We're going to eat fruits. He says, you can't eat fruits because... We used to bring Bikurim to the temple and now we can't bring it anymore. They said, okay, we can drink water. We will have the water diet. And he says, no, you can't drink water because we used to libate water on the, on the altar on Sukkot. Or in other words, there's nothing that you can eat if you really want to live with this uh, state of mind that I'm not going to do anything that used to be done at the time of the temple. There's nothing left to, for you to do. So now he got their attention. Now they're listening to him. Now they realize that, uh, I mean, it's also interesting how you, he, he sort of conducts this halachic argument. He takes their position and stretches it to the limit, what we call ad absurdum. But really, uh, he really tells them, don't, you can't, uh, you can't limit your actions to your bubble. Eventually, it will spread and will affect other people. You know, I'm thinking, for example, Think about what happened with the, with the, uh, the exaggerated emphasis on modesty, right? With all the things that we have to talk about. 
in, ob- in observance of halacha, speaking about business ethics, about civility, there are a million things to speak about for men, before men turn around and tell women what to do, right? But there's such a focus on, on modesty that you end up with women who, based of, of that, or on that fear, go and cover themselves head to toe. They call the shawl women in, in, in Me'a Sha'arim, and they do it to their children as well. And, and the Orthodox rabbis in Israel are against it. They say, no, we don't do it. Why are you doing that? The answer is, they're doing that because you're talking like that. They took your rule and took it to... You should have thought about that when you issued your rulings. So that's an important statement. That's what the whole uh, conversation... It's good to see the whole story in the, in the Talmud. But then he goes on to say that. Listen, he tells the people who want to be fanatic. He says, And he says, now we are under the yoke of the Greeks or the Romans, and they don't let us, they they, uh, impose on us terrible decrees, and they don't let us study Torah or follow mitzvot. Now, ideally, in this situation, what we should have done is not get married, we should make a decree upon ourselves, not to get married, and to have children, says, what is the point, what is the point of bringing children to a world, where they will not be able, to keep to our mitzvot, the best thing to do, is to stop getting married, stop having children, and there, in this way, there will be no Jews who transgress the Torah. Right? He takes their logic and says, we are now in a situation where our children might have to transgress some of the Torah, won't be able to keep all the mitzvot. So the ideal, the ideal way to get, make sure that nobody tra- transgresses mitzvot, uh, to, uh, the Torah is to not have children. So what is, this, what is the uh, solution? He says, says, let the Israelites be, let them be mistaken and not sinners. And that's a different, uh, there's a different version of the, uh, of the let them be, right? In the first one we were, let them be, let them do, they will find the solution. And he would say, let them make a mistake, it's fine, it's better than do it deliberately. So, this is, this is a deep story. I mean, on its face, it's just, you know, making it like this kind of, uh, uh, extreme argument, but there's something deeper here, very, very deep, and that, this is what I think he's saying. He says, what, what his point is, the question is, what is the purpose of observing Torah mitzvot? What is the purpose? What, what are we doing it for, right? And I think, well, I mentioned before, when we spoke about when you make a decree that there cannot be, that the, 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 the community cannot withstand, right? It's too much for them. So, those people view the Torah as the ultimate, uh, the ultimate goal. The Torah is an abstract. The Torah must be kept. This is the goal. The Torah must be observed. So if we have a world where people cannot observe the Torah, this world should be gone. Rabbi Yoshua sees it differently. He says, people should observe the Torah. It's not there's no kind of like cosmic entity called the Torah, called the Torah that needs to be adulated and 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 observed. 
but rather there are, we are here, we are humans, and the Torah helps us bring the best in us and bring tikkun olam and, and help the world, right? So it says, even if you have, we have a situation like that, where the Jews, the new generation that is being born, will not be able to keep Torah in, the, in, its, in its optimal level. So you say, it's better for them not to exist, so the Torah will not be transgressed. So your focus isn't on the Torah as an entity. And Rabbi Yosha says, no, the focus is on the nation. Let them be, let them, let them exist. Yeah, so there will be some transgressions. They won't, they won't be the perfect Jews for a while. But they will survive, and eventually they will re-emerge, and they will do what they have to do, which was proven correct. I mean, it took a while, but we survived. So, uh, when you take this argument to the situation of, for example, a decree that was imposed on the community, and now the community cannot tolerate it, right? It's too much for the community. Take, for example, Yom Tov Shini, we spoke about that. Uh, so you come to the rabbis and say, you know, people cannot follow this decree. It's too much for them. You know, Yom Tov Shini is a gezerah. It's not a Torah le Sinai. It's a gezerah. Please, can you lift the ban? And the rabbis say, what do you mean the community cannot withstand this gezerah? The community does it perfectly. Everybody keeps Yom Tov Shini, right? And, and then you say, no, but there are people who don't. He says, we don't care about them. They're not part of the community. So this is the same argument. The argument is the Torah must be kept. What if, according to the rabbi, there will be only 10 Jews in the world who keep Yom Tov Sheni. Everybody else decided to quit. Now oh, I can't do that. We can't do that. And because of that, they decided to quit Judaism halacha altogether. And you come to the rabbi and you say, see, and I say, no, me and my nine guys, we could, we could do it. We're still here, right? So it's like this cosmic value that, that the Torah must be kept. So this is what Rabbi Yeshua tells the people, and that's the idea also of flexibility in halacha, that you will realize that you can't do uh, everything all the time by all people. There will be fluctuations, and uh, one wave will go, another will come. So this is the story of Rabbi uh, Yeshua and those, uh, this fanatic group. Now, we're going to medieval times. This is a teshuvah by Marshach, Rabbi Shlomo Cohen of Salonika, um, is the, you know, from the 16th century. And he's talking here about um, monetary laws. And he says the following, Most of the laws of taxes and tariffs depend on the practices and decrees of each city. Now you know the the history of Salonika. Salonika of the 16th century and on was a multifaceted city. It was a cosmopolitan city because it had the local communities that lived there for, you know, from the time of the Byzantine Empire. They were really the Byzantine uh, Jews. There were Jews from uh, from the surrounding islands, and then there were the exiles who came from Spain, and then people who came from Europe. So there were dozens of synagogues in uh, uh, in Salonika, and they were not only synagogues; they were kehalim. Each one of them was a community. So you would go there; it would be kehal kadosh uh, Aragon, kehal kadosh Navarra, 
קסטיליה, טולדו, המגורשים, מוסטערבים, there. So each one of them has their own practices. And when, uh, when it comes to the issues, when the monetary issues, each one of them has different decrees and different regulations. So what do you do? So the Maharshach, Rabbi Shlomo Kohen says, very few of these laws follow the halakha and the rulings of the Talmud. So here's a recognition that it is impossible to write a codex that will encompass everything, that will regulate everything, that uh, the Torah deliberately left things ambiguous and open-ended to let uh, the future judges to give them some wiggle room and, and make their own decisions. And with the mentality of having everything written down, which is part of it was the Rambam did. Rambam wanted to create one book that will one size fits all. Rabbi uh, Shlomo Kohen says this doesn't happen. You have no precedence. Then you have to, each one deals with their own, with their own, they have their own laws, their own system. He says, Kol ra'iti, ve'amarti, I saw all that, ve'amarti ani libi, let those people reach their own decision. Let them reach a compromise or a decision. Whatever their court decide to follow, to follow their just custom. So uh, here, I mean, each one of these, uh, uh, of these statements will learn something different. Maharshach is talking about, uh, like I said, monetary laws, right? So monetary laws... The, this, we're talking about the tacit agreement, the, the, uh, uh, the non-verbal or non-written agreement. You, you make a, 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 an exchange, you make a business deal, there's a loan, uh, a contract for construction, whatever it is, and certain things were not specified. How do you know what was meant? Let's say I, I uh, hired a gardener to take care of my garden, right? That's it. And then I come at the end of the day and I say, oh, you didn't spray pesticide. And he says, oh, no, this, it doesn't include, of course, we're not talking about today. Everything is, is printed 300 pages, uh, uh, you know, by the time you, die, you read it, all the, all the, the, the bugs in your, on your grass will die anyway. But um, just an example, if you didn't specify that, how do you, and you go to court, hello, young man, uh, uh, if you didn't specify that, what do you do? The answer is, you follow the custom of the city. Now, now you have 30 kalim, 30 communities within one kingdom, right? the Ottoman Empire, and they follow their own rulings. The rabbi cannot um, subjugate them to the rule of the country. And he says, whatever they do is fine, because within their construct, they're doing the right thing. In a way, this could be applied also to minhagim and to halachot as well. Like, the, or the question is, what, the, what is the margin of error? What will happen if you don't follow the right minhag? This is, this is the thing that bothers a lot of people, especially people who converge to Judaism, or people who become religious at a certain point in life, or are and abandon and come back. They all live with this fear. Actually, people are from, from birth also all have the same, the same fear. What if I'm doing something wrong, right? What will be the consequences? So, as long as you work within a certain framework, the mistakes that you do will still fall within the norm. Um, for, 
I think I mentioned it once, it's very, very difficult to, to transgress the prohibition of not eating meat with dairy. You know, you really have to work hard to make it, to make it a do'oraita. And for a regular, your regular observant Jew, it will never happen. Because you have to cook them together and it has to be a ratio of two to one. It's impossible. So the margin of error is very wide. Uh, very wide here. And if it comes with mutual agreement of the sides, it's fine. When it comes to rituals and halachot, then you have to consider the community versus the individual, but fine. Um, another posek from the same time in, um, in Salonika of the 16th century, one of the greatest poskim of, of medieval times, Rabbi Shmuel di Modena, uh, or short, in short, Maharajdam. This is in uh, his Shalot Chuvot on Hoshen Mishpat, uh, chapter 160. Uh, the he had a, he had to deal with a very very strange case. Uh, not to mention not a strange case, a complicated case. There was a there was a burglary, a break in. A lot of gold was stolen. The suspect was found. He was brought to court. They didn't have enough evidence. Rabbi Shmuel de Modena, the Marajdam, goes through the evidence. It's all circumstantial evidence. That man uh, went to different goldsmiths trying to melt gold. Uh, which was clearly from a Jewish house. He couldn't explain why he, has, he had such uh, huge amounts of gold. It also was evident that he tried to, uh, to melt it uh, on his own. So they had enough, they had enough uh, uh, circumstantial evidence to determine that he's the guy, but all the rabbis were afraid to, 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 uh, to issue a verdict without witnesses. And he said, I'm sure that this is, this is the case. And he says... The, he went as far as saying, we are going to threaten uh, that person that we'll hand him in to the Ottoman Empire, to the government, if he doesn't confess. <clears throat> Which is, think about a Turkish prison in the 1600s. Not a nice place to be. Um, so what Maharajdam says as he analyzes the case, and he also, uh, in a way, rebukes all the rabbis who failed to reach a conclusion. Well, he says, you can't leave this thing open. Says, it's my heart, I have a hunch that it is clear that one cannot encompass all details. And the events which occur daily differ greatly from one another. So that, that's a hunch, that's his, his feeling dealing with so many different cases. So what is the uh, conclusion here. It is therefore impossible for the rabbis, for the scholars, to write and legislate all details. It is impossible to have a sefer halacha that will encompass and predict everything. We rather learn by deduction, comparison, and analogy. And we may, I mentioned last uh, last time we spoke about the book by uh, uh, Hofstadter, the uh, uh, analogy, the fuel and fire um, of thinking. The uh, the analogies are extremely important, but it's also it also matters who makes the analogies. That is something that we'll see later when we when we we talk about empathy. Then the way you identify with the case, the way certain things are highlighted for you, will, uh, will drive you to make analogies. Two rabbis dealing with the same case could come to different solutions. 
uh, there's a famous parable about uh, three blind men who uh, who bump into an elephant, and they they try to feel it and to say, uh, or they're being told that's that's an elephant, and so they touch the elephant and then they share their their uh, their uh, insights or their feelings, and one says. An elephant is like a tr- the trunk of a tree. The other one says, no, an elephant is like, an ho- like a hose. And the other one says, no, an elephant is like a huge leaf. Because one touched the ear, one touched the trunk, and one touched the, 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 the leg of the elephant. Each one sees a different part. That could also happen when you make an analogy, I mean, not, not to such an extreme, but, for example, in a case of divorce, um... One rabbi will empathize with the men, one other rabbi will empathize with the woman. It's more common that they'll empathize with the men, but this, uh, this, this point that Ma'ar makes is extremely important because we are, we are talking about the flexibility and subjectivity of halakha. Things change, circumstances change, people change, and the rabbis make analogies in order to reach a conclusion. Another, uh, another important statement from around the same time, 17th century, by one of the most important commentators of the Shohan Aruch, Rabbi Shabbatai Kohen, or the book Siftei Kohen, uh, on Yoreh De'ah. And this is uh, Yoreh De'ah 162, chapter 162, Siman, Me'ash Kuf Saif Tet. And that is something that I think rabbis should engrave in gold uh, and, 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 you know, and put as a plaque in, the, in their office. Or maybe put it on their on their uh, wristwatch, so they always remember that. <coughs> he says this: "Keshem shasul atirat asur, kach asur leesor etamutar." Just as you're not allowed to declare permitted that which is forbidden, you're not allowed to declare as forbidden that which is permitted. If you read in your sidurim, in the Sephardic sidurim, we have it. I'm not sure that everybody has it. There's a vidui of Rabbeinu Nisim for Yom Kippur. And part of the vidui, part of the confession, he says, as a dayan, as, a, as the head of the Bedin, he turns to God and he says, I confess, he says, Et asher asarta hitarti, ve'et asher hitarta asarti. He says, I'm, I, I confess, I, I said about the things that you, God, said, that they're forbidden, I said they're permitted, and vice versa. And everybody wonders that, what do you mean, who, that's great, no? If God says you could eat dairy after meat within three hours, and you decide to say, no, no, that's forbidden, I'll wait six hours, why are you apologizing for that? That's not, that's not a, a sin, right? It's not. How can you say that? So the Shach explains why this is forbidden, why this is a sin. In most cases, the stringency becomes a leniency from a different aspect. So the stringency leads to leniency. In other words, just like I mentioned before about Hillel, uh, sorry, about Rabbi Yoshua talking to the fanatic group and telling them you don't live in a bubble, right? The Shach says, your rulings does not take place in a vacuum. It has consequences. Your ruling today might have negative consequences in the future. Kula, so he says, Humrain Kula, 
is not about saying forbidden or permitted. This is not the Humrah and Kula. Humrah and Kula is, the, the yardstick is, am I mending the situation, am I fixing the problem, or am I causing problems? Humrah, in, in that sense, Humrah is when I make sure that everything works fine, and Kula is when I let things go loose. So what could happen here? He says, he continues, Even though you think that nothing bad could happen because of that, it's still forbidden. Why? This could happen after a hundred steps in a chain reaction. Something will happen that will turn your strict ruling into a uh, actually a lenient one. I'm going to give you examples. I'm thinking. I'm sure you can think. Once you, uh, I, I think I mentioned several times uh, in our classes. But I'll give you two examples. Uh, one sort of trivial, the other one a little more, uh, m- much more serious. So trivially one, um, I had a guest who came for Shabbat, uh, and he called me on Friday, he says, I'm going to come drop a bottle of wine by you. Right? And then w- when he came over, he said that the other Shabbat, he was invited, <clears throat> he was invited to a rabbi, and he brought with him a bottle of wine. And the rabbi refused to let him bring the wine into the house. He said, leave it at the door. And that man was very offended. Uh, he felt hurt. And let's say it didn't impact his religious observance. And let's say that he drove on Shabbat to the house of the rabbi. And that's why the rabbi didn't want to do it. But really, come to think of it, what the rabbi did... Right, he was strict in his mind. He was strict by not letting that man bring the wine into the house, but he was lenient by allowing someone to be offended, which is a biblical offense. Right, uh, not bringing that wine into the house is a biblical, maybe maybe under a biblical decree. But you know what? You could say if that if we let those things get to us, then we will always be politically correct and we'll let those who are not observant do whatever they want around us. They have to know the boundaries. This is how people talk. Okay, fine, I accept. That could be, you know, an argument there. Take a little more uh, complicated situation. Uh, we, had, we had neighbors who, um, you could say the husband was a bit more religious, more devout than the wife, and the children were floating. They were okay. I would come back from shul, on Shabbat, and <clears throat> the, the, the woman would, would stand outside, she sees me coming, says, are you done with tefillah yet? I said, yes, but I, I prayed in a different minyan than your husband, they're not going to be done for a next, another half hour, she says, oh, thank God, you know, like, she's so happy, I said, why, what happened? She says, the moment he comes home, he starts yelling at the kids, why did you take ice from the, from the ice maker, it's Shabbat, right, and why did you do this, why did you do that? And they, they just dread the moment he comes home, right? So this is another example. That man, in, in his mind, is being strict about the laws of Shabbat, but is really lenient because he allows for the atmosphere of Shabbat to be destroyed. But then again, it's about feelings, it's about, you know, uh, you bring it up to, uh, 
to the posek, he says, oh, you know what, men up, you know, those children, they have to learn halacha. Okay, so here's another example. We, uh, we spoke about the, the minhag, the Sephardic minhag, which was also a yeki minhag, to use electricity on Yom Tov. Um, and um, maybe I mentioned it, but I, I think it pretty much uh, correlates to the, uh, to the spreading of, uh, to the uh, availability of TV. Because this was practiced by Sephardim and by Yekis in Israel and in America. And it was stopped by the rabbis in America in the 50s and in Israel in the 70s. That's the time where more people had TV sets at home. In Israel in the 70s, before that we had the, you know, the Jordanian TV. So the rabbis decided to put their foot down and tell people, don't use electricity on Yom Tov because, God forbid, they might use it you know, to watch TV. So in people's mind, it's very clear today that you cannot use electricity on Yom Tov. Um, regarding electricity on Shabbat, there's another story. Rav Shlomo Zaman Oerbach, many, many years ago, already ruled that most, most uh, devices and appliances uh, that are electric on Shabbat really don't have a problem. So the reason he doesn't publicize it is because people couldn't tell the difference between those instruments which are allowed and those that are not okay. Now, when, when are we allowed to use electricity on Yom Tov and Shabbat? When would everybody agree that it's okay? Yeah, when there's Bikuah Nefesh, right? When someone's life is in danger. However, because the general tendency is to be strict and to view the use of electricity on Shabbat or on Yom Tov as the ultimate transgression, the result is that people who face a situation where they might have to use electricity on Shabbat to save a life, wait till the last minute. Because they feel like, I'm now, what I'm doing carries the capital punishment. How can I do it? No, let me wait. Let me be, let me be sure that what I'm doing is totally necessary. And I'm sure there are many cases where people lost their lives and we don't even know about that. But one case that we do know is in the uh, Hasidic community in upstate New York or maybe in Canada, the community of Tosh, the, uh, there was a fire that broke out on Rosh Hashanah. It's Yom Tov, not even Shabbat. Broke out on Rosh Hashanah and they refused to call 911 and people died. So... When, when you talk about being strict or being lenient, right? The uh, wouldn't it be worth it for the rabbis to tell all observant Jews all over the world that it's okay to use electricity on Yom Tov, and you choose you could choose not to use it, but you know there is no problem with it, and in that manner to save one life, one person that could have could have lived and died unnecessarily. This I, I don't think that you could look at the the rule the statement of the shach, right, and not be impressed by what he said and not be appalled by why people are not adopting it, by because this really applies to everything in halacha. When people tell me you are very lenient, I said no, I'm very strict. So when my stringency is, I'm trying to make Judaism. I'm trying to make it work for people. I want people to love Judaism and love halacha and stay within the fold and save their lives and their and their mental health and their relationships. Instead, 
people with stringencies come and, and sometimes cause uh, uh, destruction. So that's a really a very important uh, ruling of the of the shach on on that topic. And I think one second, um, there's more here uh, on that subject. This is uh, source number seven. It's more about the subjectivity of how we assess the readiness of someone to fulfill a mitzvah. But we'll keep that for next time, Bezrat Hashem. And we'll stay with that idea and it's to really think of different rulings that you're familiar with and how they, uh, they could be viewed as both stringent or lenient depend on perspective. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.